Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I'm your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today I am joined with one of my good friends, Eric, who has only killed me in Minecraft once. Hi, Eric. Hey, Caitlin. Um... <laughs> Cold open. It was an it was an accident, <laughs> by the way. Was it? I was trying to save you. You just got in the way. I guess so. I guess it was only once. Exactly. I can let it slide. Yeah. It's only like the third accidental killing that you have to be like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> Something's not right here. Mm-hmm. So Eric, do you how much experience do you have with uh murder mystery solving slash um, Agatha Christie novels? Basically none. Aside from awesome. the few episodes I've listened to. <laughs> okay. And even then, I'm, I'm not fully paying attention, so it's a total shock to every time the reveal comes around. <laughs> that makes it better. It's, a good, it's good when it's a nice reveal. Mm-hmm. So this book is called Murder on the Lynx, and Lynx is referring to golf course. Okay. It was written in 1923, so it's actually her third book. So this is like mm-hmm. her getting warmed up into mysteries. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, she's amazing, so it's not like it's going to be easy. <laughs> so we start, um, Poirot, our, our famous detective, Hercule Poirot, is going to feature pretty prominently in this one, same as with episode, I think, one and four. Okay. Um, and his friend Hastings is joining him. So Hercule Poirot is like a Belgian famous detective who Agatha Christie uses for a lot of her stories. And then Hastings is kind of like the Watson to Hercule Poirot is ah. Sherlock type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so he's he's got this like fun thing going on where Hastings will always guess what the answer is and he's almost always wrong. And then mm. Poirot kind of makes fun of him. So that's like their dynamic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm picturing like a sort of like a house situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. This and house is like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> Poirot's a little bit nicer about it. Um, he he just kind of chastises him and goes, Use your brain. You can do this on your own. Right. Um, so should we get started? Yeah, let's go. Great. Okay, so it starts with Hastings has been in Paris for business, and he's on the train back to London where he's living with Poirot. They're like, um, they've got an apartment together. Okay. And there's only, there's a girl in the carriage. He's on the train. I guess how it worked then is there was no like that underground train that goes under the channel. You took a train from Paris to Calais and then a boat to England. Ooh. Okay. So they're in the train. There's only one other girl in the carriage and he immediately disapproves of her because he's like old school, military, like old fashioned, like girls shouldn't swear or like wear short skirts or whatever. And she's kind of doing all those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she says hell. That was Unbelievable. That's what he disapproved of. <laughs> I mean, never. Terrible. <laughs> so she manages, she's, she's, She's just talented and manages to turn his opinion of her around by kind of being a little goofy and making him laugh. Okay. And so they, they <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe that's the wrong word, but she right. she manages to turn his opinion around. He he starts to like her. They warm up to each other. They ended up okay. having a great chat. And by the end of the trip, he really wants to see her again. Okay. And I should say that. She, he says that she's about 17, and I'm pretty sure in Agatha Christie lore, Hastings is 37. So Okay. Hmm. That's out there. Just keep that in mind for the rest okay. of this book. <laughs> that very much violates half your age plus seven. Yeah. Come on, Hastings. What are you doing? <laughs> so then, so Hastings gets, um, takes the boat back. The next morning, he's in London with Poirot, and he comes out to have breakfast 
where Poirot's already started, he's opening his mail, and there's this one letter that sticks out because um, it's more like an out of the ordinary case. Normally he's been solving like finding dogs for women or like kind of boring menial tasks. Yeah. So this one is from a Mr. Renald. Um, It is urgently asking Poirot to come to this small town in France where he lives because he has this really big fear, but he's kind of, he won't, he doesn't want to write down what it is. He's like too private. Yeah. That's kind of a dick move though. You know, it's like, take this, take this case on. It's too, I promise you, it's so spooky. I can't even tell you what it is, but it's going to be real spooky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agatha Christie actually uses this trope like in several other books where it's this letter. No. So, you know, just fun fact. But yeah, so he, right. he he says in the letter, like, it's so private, he can't, and he can't even tell the police. Like, he can't get them involved. It's, it would be like a scandal or whatever. Jeez. Um, so Poirot, Poirot can see through these letters, like he'd know if it was fake or not, but he can mm-hmm. tell by the way it was written, this is the real deal. So they, he knows, he knows it's so urgent that he immediately gets a car and they go to the he can, He feels the fear in this letter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they get, they leave immediately and... When they arrive in France, oh, in the letter, the Renald guy, Mr. Renald, had told them that if they sent him a telegram saying they were coming, he would send um, his driver in a car out to meet them at the boat dock. But there's no car waiting for them. Hmm. So that's a little, like, suspicious, like, what's going on here? But no matter, they hire a car and they go there on their own. Okay. So they pull up at, I'm going to call it the Villa, because that's kind of, I think it's called the Villa Marguerite in the book, but I'm going to shorten it to the Villa. Mm -hmm. Um. They get arrived there in a small town, and there's a police officer blocking their path. And he says, no, no, you can't enter. Monsieur Renald has been murdered. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So it's the classic, you're too late. He's already dead. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Too bad. Um, But yeah, we're getting right into it. Dead guy already. So Poirot, again, he had sensed this urgency. So he jumps out of the car and asks the officer what has happened. And the officer's like, I can't tell you. Who are you? Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, but Poirot has this letter. I think what he does is he has like a, a business card and he writes a message on it because he, he was friends with the commissioner and the commissioner is inside the house and says, take this to him. And then basically immediately the commissioner comes out and invites them in because he's their old friends. Sorry. So, so he, or Hastings or Poirot had a business card from Mr. Renald. Uh, no, it's, it's Poirot's business card. Poirot was a, a detective in the Be- Belgian police force, like before any Agatha Christie books began. Like that's his history, um, okay. and he was super famous and well known. So now that they're in France, ah, I see, it's kind of close. To so Belgium. he's such a big name that they're like, let yeah. this guy in. Okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so this this commissioner, his name is Mister Bex. He's an old friend of Poirot's. So they invite. Uh, they get into the house and they've got the commissioner, Mr. Bex, and then they've got the examining magistrate, uh, Mr. Otet. Um, I think they, throughout the book, they call it, call him the judge or the magistrate, but he's like, I guess if the, he's like one step higher than the commissioner in terms of who's in charge. Okay. And so they explain why they were called that Ms., uh, Mr. Renald had um, sent them a letter. And then the commissioner explains to them about what, how the murder had happened that Mr. Renald had been found stabbed in the back, lying in an open grave, like Ooh. near the property. Yeah. Okay. Some other um, facts were that his wife had been found in her room, bound and gagged, and she was kind of found almost unconscious by the maid in the morning. Okay. And the front the front door was found ajar in the morning by the servants as well. Okay. And then finally, they think death was between midnight and 3 a.m. by the doctor. Um, and the wife 
fixes it at 2 a.m. because she heard like chimes the um, clock on the mantle dinging 2 a.m. Okay. So first they interviewed a housekeeper. Her name is Francoise. And she said that the night before there had been a woman who she says is this Madame Dobray who lives nearby. And okay. I think she lived in like the house next door. And she visited frequently. She was frequently coming over for night visits. And so she had been there the night before and had left around 10, 25 p.m. Okay, so she was there the night, the, sorry, the night before the murder. The, I guess it's the night of the murder because the, the, mm-hmm. the guy was like killed t- around like 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. Like, you know, right. And she was morning. there at 10, 25. Yeah, so like kind of right. hours before. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get this feeling that um, Francoise, the servant, is kind of saying like, was there an affair going on here? Like she's hinting right. at this. Why is this woman always in the house? Especially late at night. Especially late at night. So where so was the speak... wife then? Yeah. Sorry. If if um, Madame Dobray was there at 1025, wouldn't the wife be like, hmm, this lady <laughs> a lot of late night visits? Yeah. So we'll, we'll get to like the interview of the wife. But so the wife right. had gone to bed at 9, p- 9 p.m. So she, technically she was kind of out of the picture. Gotcha. Sort of. Um, so Francoise is the housekeeper. Then the maids are these two sisters, Leonie and Denise. None of them are going to be too integral in the story. Um, but just, just so you're aware of them, Denise says that the woman visiting the night before, the, the woman who Francoise has said was Madame Dobray, mm-hmm. she said, no, it wasn't her. It was oh. a different dark haired woman. So they looked similar, but I let her out. Like I um, locked the door behind her. It was definitely not the Madame Dobray. Damn. Okay. Yeah. And then the last thing was that they couldn't interview the chauffeur because just the day before... Uh, Mr. Renault had given him vacation and had told him to like go away for a few weeks. Hmm, okay. So that's maybe a little suspicious, but they're not sure yet. Um, I don't know if he has a name. I'm just going to call him the valet or the chauffeur. Okay. So then the police, so both the maids leave, the housekeeper's gone, and the police are discussing who they should trust more, whether it should be Denise, that it wasn't Madame Dobray, or where they should trust Francoise. And right. the, the decision is kind of swayed by this letter that was found in the dead man's pocket. So mm-hmm. the Mr. Arnold was, he was just wearing like undergarments over and then a trench coat over top of it. So it's already a little weird, but then okay. in the pocket of the trench coat um, is this letter that's addressed my dearest one. And it's from Bella. So they're like, who is this Bella? Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's like a third woman. Sorry, um, third and then woman? It, oh, I see. The first being his wife. Yeah, the wife, Madame Dobray, and then the third person. (laughs) So in the letter, it says um, the woman is telling him that she suspects that there is another woman, and she would rather kill him than let some other woman have him. Whoa, so Bella's nuts. Yes, Bella Bella seems a little crazy. Right. Imagine if she found out that she was the third woman. (laughs) I would hope she'd know there was a wife. Well. Wait, is that where she draws the line? The wife's fine for having <laughs> another person on the side? How dare you? Well, uh, so un- unclear, but so that's what the letter says. Mm-hmm. And so this was what they were suspecting until Poirot had arrived. They were suspecting that this woman had been jealous. She had come and stabbed the man. But Poirot arrives with this this having been hired, and that doesn't fit in. Like, that's a totally different story. Mm. So they were, had been in, I think, the library, and they moved to the study across the hall to look around. And Poirot finds, I think it had already been checked, but Poirot finds something that hadn't been found before. It was a ripped up piece of a check and the name it was addressed to was Duveen. So that's all that's kind of left over. 
Um, the rest of the check had been cleaned up. Apparently, like pieces had been scattered all over the floor, and the housekeeper Francoise had like burned them early in the morning when she was cleaning up. So that's it's gone except for this one. Wow, they burnt, the housekeeper burned burned the check up. That was like common getting rid of trash back then. Is you just threw it in like the furnace oh, okay. or something. So that's, yeah, that's not like it wasn't. So it's not like a, some some big tell like. No, it, wasn't no, no. Tre- it was treated like regular garbage. Yes, correct. So they're kind of thinking maybe this Bella and the Duveen are the same person, but on like that's unclear. They could be it could be even another person. Right. And the police tell Poro about the will at this point. And so a, th- um, a thousand pounds had been left to the secretary who was currently had been in England for work. And they, I think they'd like call summon him back after the murder. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the money, which is like millions, millions of dollars had been left to his wife solely. Okay. Um, and this is, he has a son, like a 21 year old son or something like that named Jack. And okay. his old will used to split the millions between his son and his Ooh, wife okay. but a new will had been written a fortnight ago which is like about two weeks okay um so pretty recently that it's now not to his son all to his wife damn okay so next they go to see the body to show poro and hastings and it's been moved into there's like a, a shed kind of near the house on the property and so they've locked up the body mm-hmm. um and they had found the knife had still been in the body when they had found it, and now they've put it in a jar in the shed beside the body. And there's no fingerprints. No fingerprints. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly... I don't... There was no no clues kind of about the body, but they they see it, they see the knife, they lock... The shed is locked, they lock back up the shed. Okay. So uh, while they're there, Francoise comes to the shed and lets them know that Madame Renaud is awake and she's ready to talk. So they all immediately go up to her room to see her. Mm -hmm. And... She describes, this is where it kind of gets interesting, well, it's already interesting, but now we're kind of hearing more of the story. She describes how she had woken up to a hand over her mouth and had been bound and gagged by this man. There were two men in the room, one short, one tall. They had like South American accents and were wearing like beards and like hats over their eyes. Okay. And they were using her, she had been gifted from her, um, her son Jack had gifted her like as a souvenir, this little dagger paper knife that was, I think, like from the war. Okay. From It was like an aircraft made out of an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the men were holding this knife like up to her husband's chest, like threatening him. Um, so I should say that. M- Miss, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So she woke, so she woke up, there were two men and they had already taken her husband at that point. Yeah. And they, one bound and gagged her while the other held her husband. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. She's still and, in the room. And they were holding the dagger from Jack at this point? Yeah, so Jack had gifted to her, however, like maybe years ago, a couple years ago or a year ago, and it was just, it sat on her dresser. Right. In the room. Um, the South American accents is kind of important. I, um, Mr. Renald had been living in South America for like a decade or two with mm-hmm. his wife. Um, he, and that's where he had like made all his minion, uh, min, minions. That's where he had made all his minions. <laughs> Jesus, I'm going to say it again. <laughs> that's where he had made all his millions and had all of like his interests um and also when in the letter to poro he had kind of mentioned that that he might need to be sent to santiago in south america because again he didn't give a reason why but he mentions it okay so the men had brought this is still um the wife describing what had happened they had brought mr Renald into the dressing room that was attached to the bedroom and she could only vaguely hear what they were saying but they were demanding to know where the like secret was 
and they apparently were able they found the key and were able to open the safe that was in the dressing room and they took all the money that was in it which was i maybe like thousands of dollars right okay and then i think they had tried to get her husband to dress which clearly like i guess that was just an overcoat and um, kind of dragged him out of the room so she doesn't know anything past that okay um, so when they ask her if that if she knew that her husband had hired a detective, she is she's like clearly surprised. So he had not told her anything about that. So she, yeah. So he had been hiding this this secret, this spooky yeah. secret. That he yeah. Run. They kind of give her, both the wife and the servants kind of give this idea that for like the last maybe like basically since they moved to this small town, which was maybe six weeks ago or a couple months ago, he had been starting to act strange, maybe a little paranoid, like those kinds of. Um, just off like he wasn't himself right so then so this is when they'd asked her to fix the time and she remembers the mantelpiece striking 2 a.m and there's also this wristwatch that's on the floor that's been smashed but it's weird because it reads 7 p.m when in actuality um, when in actuality it's it's currently 5 p.m so it almost looks like it's been smashed trying to set the time two hours ahead of when it was supposed to be but the 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 wristband smashed but the timepiece didn't stop Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. So the watch reads 7 p.m., but it was... So um, the, when they're looking at it right, like, they're talking to the wife and looking at the wristwatch. Um, the wristwatch says 7 p.m., but in actuality, it's actually only 5 p.m. when they're interviewing her. Ah, okay, okay. So the watch is still going. Yeah, so it looks like... It looks like she... she they think that the watch was maybe smashed in the struggle, but it, it didn't actually break. The timepiece didn't break. Mm-hmm. So it's but it's two hours ahead, and so they ask her, "Does it gain?" And they're like, "She's like, yes, the watch gains, but I've never known it to gain that much in a day." Wow. Okay. So back when you know you couldn't trust the time, right? <laughs> um, she also is able to identify the dagger as being the murder weapon as being hers. This is like she tells them that was a gift, and she also tells them. So the reason her son's not around is he had been in Paris for the last two weeks. And her husband had just told him that he needed to go to Santiago, like was sending him to South America and his ferry or his boat had left the night before. So he's like on a boat to South America. Okay. So his son was in Paris, but then is going to South America. Yeah. The, I think he was supposed to leave the night before the murder took place, like Hmm. hours before probably. Um, And so they, they ask her, they're kind of like, I like, we're so sorry, but this means you're going to have to identify the body. Like if your son was around, we would have got him, but like, it's going to have to be you. Mm -hmm. And she, she, I think they say like, we can put it off. And she's like, no, no, I want to go now. And so she goes down and she, she's like, you know, she's acting really strong and they bring her into the shed and flip the body over. And she basically just cries out and faints. And Mm -hmm. This makes Paro like checks her and like checks her eyelids, eyelids and her pulse to make sure like she's not faking it. And it makes mm-hmm. him think that he was wrong. Like it seems like he already had this theory and now he's like, oh, wait, wait, wait I must be wrong. Right. Right. Because why would she be so stunned to, to, to see the body, right? Yeah. Because it's, I'd assume nothing horrific happened to the front of the body if he was just stabbed in the back. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's maybe... Poirot clearly thinks it's not weird, but he's kind of shocked that that was her reaction. Mm-hmm. So back in the house, Poirot makes a remark that the stairs are really creaky. Like even when he had been going up the stairs before, he was like kind of walking around on all of them and finding that you couldn't step anywhere without making noise. Okay. And he says that it was, the reason he's saying this is he's like, it's weird that three people came down these stairs 
and it didn't wake anyone in the house at mm. 2 a.m. You'd think mm-hmm. it'd wake some of the servants. Everyone's living in the house. Right. So then they next, they kind of point out, they're trying to figure out how did the burglars, not burglars, but whatever, the... the the Abductors, the kidnappers. Yeah. How did they get in? And they're saying, oh, well, the door was left open. It's kind of, And they're like, well, that was convenient. But then all of the windows on the ground floor have bars on them. So it couldn't, it couldn't have been the windows. Right. There is a tree right next to the window of the of their bedroom the husband and wife's bedroom okay um but the flower bed underneath it has been is like it's showing no signs of footprints whereas like okay. some of the other beds have footprints but they they're the guard it's like they call them like hobnailed boots they're like we know those are the gardener's footprints i see but, um, and, um, so the window, but the window has bars on it, right? So even if they could climb the tree, could they have made it in? The first floor windows have bars. So the second floor, uh, they could have gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, Poirot's kind of just saying like, it's awfully convenient that the front door was left open when Denise, the maid had said um, that she like locked it at 1030. She did that every night and she definitely did it the night before. Mm-hmm. So next they go to see the grave site and it turns out to be on a golf course that borders the property. And that was part of the reason that Mr. Renault had moved there is because he really liked to golf. So the fact that it was close to this makes sense. Mm-hmm. While they're there, they meet this new detective, Mr. Giraud, and he's a famous detective from Paris. So we have Hercule Poirot, famous detective from London, and this Giro, <laughs> I guess they're kind of similar, from Paris. And immediately the two of the, these two detectives don't like each other. They're like rivals already. <laughs> right. Um, and it's partly because Poirot's like older, so he's like old school, and Giro's pretty young, so he's like, my methods are better, and so there's like that right, competing. Right. Um, so near the grave, they find the spade that was used to like dig the grave. It had been dug that night. Gardening gloves, which would have kept the fingerprints off, and there's also like a piece of lead pipe, and the Giro guy's like, yeah, I've checked them all, there's no fingerprints, and um, Poirot's like, well, what about this lead pipe? And she like, Giro's like, that's not important. Poirot's like, mm, I think it is. <laughs> right. It's just, it's just weird, weird competition. Mm-hmm. So the magistrate invites Poirot and Hastings to come with them to visit Madame Dobray. So that's the neighbor who may or may not have visited the night before. And on their way over, the commissary, so Mr. Bex, tells them that in the last six weeks, the Madame Dobray has deposited 200,000 francs, which is the equivalent of 4,000 pounds in three installments over, like, over the last six weeks. Okay. Hmm. Um, so 4,000 pounds in 1923, I assume, is a lot more money. Right. Um, so that's their think. They're, they're thinking he mu- she must have been his mistress, and she like he, that's why he's giving her all his money. All this money, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they get to the house, the Madame Dobre has a daughter who opens the door and she immediately looks like terrified. Like she, they, they say Whoa. she looks afraid and her eyes kind of like anxious, mm-hmm. but she fetches her mother who says she knows nothing about the death or how um, he had been feeling before. Like, of course he didn't tell the murdered man didn't tell her anything about his like emotions. Mm-hmm. And the magistrate then kind of says that a man tells his mistress more than he tells his wife, to which Madame Dobray is immediately upset and super mad and kicks him out of the house. Hmm, okay. So that's definitely not a usual reaction. <laughs> Maybe not. So Poirot and Hastings go back to their hotel, and on their way, 
Marthe Dobre. So Marthe Dobre is the name of the daughter of Madame Dobre. So I'll call her Marthe. She catches up to them and she kind of says that she'd heard that this famous detective was called in and she wants to know if there are any suspects. And Poirot's kind of like, well, we can't tell you that. But she pushes and um, I don't think they give her anything, but he kind of just says like suspicion is everywhere is his answer. Right. And then Poirot also tells, so she leaves and Poirot tells Hastings that he feels like he's seen the mother's face before. Um, back when he was in the police force in Belgium, he kind of, re- he recognizes her face. He's not sure from where. The next day, Poirot and Hastings arrive at the villa and they start, Leonie, one of the maids, is coming downstairs. And so they kind of start gossiping with her to get some info on her. And she feels so bad for her mistress, who has never complained about her husband's actions and like didn't do anything about it, even though her husband was acting so terribly. Right. And... She says that Mr. Renald had had a huge fight with his son right before he left for Paris. So this, they're kind of uh, placing, it's right before that new will was written. Okay, so he had some huge fight with his son, and then yeah. he's taken out of the will. His son yeah. goes to Paris, and then his later on... His son was on, already supposed to go to Paris, so like that was pre-planned. Right. But then Miss Rudo Bray tells his wife that their son is supposedly going to South Africa. And that happens, and that he was scheduled to leave right about when he was murdered. Yeah, and it's Mr. Arnold. I'm oh, very yes, confusing. Sorry, sorry. Yes, but I, uh, I can see where it from. Yeah, M- Renault. Yes. Yeah. Um. So Lanny then she's not Lanny's not able to tell them what the fight was about because they were speaking English and she's she can speak some English but not when they're speaking that quickly because they were right. um the Renalds I guess mainly spoke English and but knew French I guess. I, they don't say that, but that's the impression. Mm-hmm. So then Hastings leaves. Poirot wants to like sit inside, whereas Hastings is like, again, he's like, he's a little younger and he wants to like be on the ground looking for clues. Like kind of what the this new detective Giraud from Paris is doing, right. where he's like a foxhound. So Hastings goes out to kind of find him and sees what's to see what's up. And Poirot doesn't mind. He's like, yeah, go for it. I'm just going to sit here and use my psychology and my mind to figure it out. Right, right. This this actually reminds... Have you seen the John Mulaney bit where he's talking about, like, old school detectives? Where he's like, I've got a hunch. And no. cops come in and they're like, sir, we found a, a pool of the murderer's blood in the other room. And then the detective goes, yuck, go mop that up. And talking about how, like, old school <laughs> detectives, it must have been just horrible. <laughs> so it's kind of like that, except Poirot is... He's not disturbing with evidence. He just... He thinks that he can guess what all the clues would be without actually having to find them. Right. So more like if, if let's say, um, Jiro found like a cigarette butt, Poirot already knew that it was there. He didn't know, need to go looking for it. Right. He's just that much better is kind of the, the next level. The take. Yeah. 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 So Hastings, he kind of wants to see, he wants to approach the grave site without um, disturbing anyone. So he pushes through the hedges, um, uh, closer to the house rather than farther away and as he's pushing mm-hmm. through the hedges he runs into the girl from the train oh my what who had never given i know train girl holy so train girl never never gave him her name oh my gosh <laughs> what so train girl and i'm gonna keep calling her train girl because i yeah. think cause i've actually i was wondering when train girl was gonna come back yeah because when you're like when you're like yeah Perot like recognizes Dobre a little bit 
And I'm like, that's Train Girl. It's got to be, this is where it's coming together. But no, <laughs> Train Girl is someone else. Yeah, Train Girl is someone else. So she insists. She's been kind of like snooping around trying to like see the crime scene. She had been telling Hastings on the train that she like loved murder stories and thought they were great. And that was mm-hmm. partly another thing that Hastings was like, women shouldn't like murder. Like women should faint and whatever. Right. Whatever. <laughs> But um, she insists that he show her the crime scene. And he's kind of like, no, of course not. That's a terrible idea. But then she's kind of like pushing his buttons in just the right way that he's like, okay, fine, I'll show you. Like, just to prove that, like, I can type, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. So Hastings gets the, there's like a, they call them like a sergeant de ville, like a police officer stationed in the house that has the key to the shed. And he just goes, asks for it. And because they know his face, they give it to him. And he brings it out and goes into the shed with the girl to show her the dead man. And she kind of like sees, initially she's okay, but then she actually sees the face of the dead man. And she like collapses and asks for water, which he like runs to get for her. Yeah. Uh, And when he gets back, she's kind of like, she thanks him for the water and then says that she just needs to go lie down. Like she needs to go back to the village. And so he walks her, he walks her kind of like into town. Okay. When he's on his way back, he realizes that he forgot to lock back up the shed. Oh, shit. Which, okay. that is going to come up very shortly. <laughs> also, is it ever explained how Train Girl got there? Is she just a stalker? Like, No, he, she kind of says nothing. Um, she had been on the train. She had been saying that she was chasing her sister, like she couldn't find her sister. Um, so there's kind of like this idea that maybe she chased her sister here. Because she hadn't got on the boat. She wasn't on the boat with Hastings when they were turning to London. She was only on the train. And I think she was supposed to be going back to England, but hadn't made it on. So, hmm. no. No idea how she got here. Okay. Jeez. Uh-huh. So, Hastings gets back. He, like, locks up the shed, gives back the key a little late. Um, and finds that the gardener is being interrogated. And the gardener kind of tells him, nothing was locked up. I didn't lock any of the sheds. Anyone could have taken my spade and my gardening gloves. Like, that's, I don't know what to tell you which they take. And then um, I think Poro asks him, like, if if he had just done all the beds. And um, the gardener's like, yeah, yesterday I just planted, I planted this um, this type of flower in all of the beds around the house. And right. um, yeah, so it makes sense that my footprints are in the bed. Hmm. So suddenly Mr. Giro appears at the window. I think they had been in, like, one of the, um, the study or the library. And the magistrate and him kind of throw words is how I've put it because the magistrate doesn't like Jiro because the magistrate's old and Jiro's young and Jiro right. does they not don't like, like the these new school detectives that are Nip. looking for clues Nip. and stuff. Yeah. Nip. So they, they kind of get in a little, not a fight, but they, you know, they're sharp exchange towards words. each other. Yeah. They exchange words. So this is kind of where it comes in. Jiro has found a cigarette butt and a matchstick from South America and Poirot kind of just says to him, like, I failed to see how this is important. Whereas, like, Jiro thinks, like, it just proves that, like, the South people from South America were there. It's, you know. Yeah, and it sorry, wasn't... where was the cigarette found? They, the cigarette butt and the matchstick were found near the gravesite, I'm pretty sure. Or, like, on the way to it. Okay, yep. Um, and they're South, they're South American, and they weren't the ones that Mr. Rinald smoked. So they're like, this is from these men, these, like, intruders. <clears throat> but Poirot is unimpressed. Um, and then Jiro suggests that someone had a key and that's how they gained access because Poirot is saying this door being open is a big deal. Whereas Jiro is like, eh, not really. Like it could be anything. 
Wait, so wait, Jiro's suggesting that the door being left open is not a big deal? Yeah, he's kind of saying, oh, like, they just forgot to close it. Like, why are you so fixated on this? Um, Like, they probably were just able to get a key or, like, someone on the inside let them in. Like, it doesn't really matter. Whereas Poro says to him um, that any theory that does not account for why the door was left open is incomplete. So he's like, no, this is a big deal. Right. He's, he's this perfectionist detective and he has to find this unifying theory that explains yeah. all the... He kind of... Exactly. Which, this is how he's going to be for all, like, 80 books that... She's not in all of them, but all of the books that he's in is the same kind of thing of, like, right. it's a puzzle and all the puzzle pieces have to fit in. If they don't interlock together properly, then you haven't found the right solution. Right. Okay. So then Poirot asks Jiro if this case reminds him of anything, like a case from the past. And Jiro says no, and that's not important. But Poirot kind of points out that crimes committed by the same person look similar. Like it's mm-hmm. like serial killer type, that idea. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if someone commits this one crime, if they commit a crime again, they're probably going to use the same ideas. Right. Okay. And so as they're kind of like bickering, but it's it's almost getting like super heated. The secretary, whose name is Gabriel Stoner, arrives. He's come from England. And he's the one that had 1000 left in his will? Yeah, he was left $1,000 of like mm-hmm. of the vast millions. Um, yep. And he, had been, he says he's been working for Renald for two years since his arrival from South America. So it seems that Renald had been living in France, but not necessarily this village for two years. And he says that he kind of was giving a background of the Mr. Renald, saying that he talked a lot about South America, but he had never mentioned a secret to him. He had never heard the name Bella Devine before in connection with Renald, but he kind of feels like it sounds familiar, but he can't. And Duveen was the name, Dubrine was the name on the check? Yeah, Duveen was on the check and Bella was on the letter. Gotcha, gotcha, yep. And they've just, they've connected them together as saying that it's the same, probably the same person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then he also says that he knows Ronald and Ronald would have never cheated on his wife. Like, that's not like him at all. He knew, like, his him and his wife loved each other. He thought, like, it was just really beautiful. They would never, never, never cheat on each other. Like, that's impossible. Hmm, okay. Um, and then he also said that he did know the contents of the will. Um, the, he knew that half was going to the wife and half to the son. So he hadn't even been told of the new will being wow. right, written. Right. And then he also vouches for the chauffeur and says that he had actually known the chauffeur beforehand. Like he'd know the family of the chauffeur was with and they had like really strongly, highly vouched for him. So he doesn't think that there's any connection there. Okay. And that neither the chauffeur or the, um, the chauffeur had never been to South America. Hmm. So then they bring down Madame Renald and she basically kind of like breaks down and says, like they're asking her basically point blank, is your husband having an affair? And she breaks down and says he may have had an affair. Ooh. She's not sure. Okay. Yeah. Which really, this is crazy. It really like the Gabriel Stoner secretary is really surprised. Like the shock is super evident on his face because he really okay. thought that was impossible. Right. Then we have another interruption. Jack Renald bursts into the room and starts like comforting his mother. And that's Whoa. everyone's kind of one way. Because he's supposed to be on a ship to South America. Yeah, yeah, okay. What? I'm a little suspicious of Jack, obviously, because he, he makes sense. Makes sense for him to be the prime suspect because he just lost millions by being taken out of the will. Yeah. Um, There's hmm. no reason to suspect he knew that he was taken out of the will. Ah, I see. I see. So they had right, of course. Unless it unless their un- fight was so bad that yeah. his dad like specifically was like, 
you, son. You're, you're not getting my money anymore. Yeah. And it sounds like like um, him and his dad after the fight, it sounds like they had been on good terms. Like him and his dad had exchanged, um, like they were sending letters to each other. And he said that they were all very court, like they're all very nice. Like his dad sounded um, really pleasant in all of the letters. So that kind of is a little weird if they had a, like if he completely cuts him out of his will, but then is still being like really, like he hadn't, he hadn't cut him off completely. He's still right. communicating with him all the time. Mm. That's weird. Um, and he, he kind of gives the explanation of why he was, why he's here, not on the boat. He says his boat was delayed by 24 hours. And so he's just waiting around in, um, I forget the name of the city, but wherever the boat was leaving from. And he had seen in the papers about the death of his father. So he basically immediately come back. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the telegram, I think he has with him the telegram that was sending him to South America and there's nothing important in it. Just like, there's no, there's no reasoning of why he's being South America, being sent to South America. It just says basically, basically I'm paraphrasing son, go to South America. There's important business father. Right. (laughs) But no description. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then Jack admits that he had fought with his father, but refuses to say why he's not giving any information. Okay. But Poirot was able to tell them. So this is this is the kind of thing I'm saying of like Poirot doesn't need to know what the fight is about. He can guess. I see. So he gives, he tells us. <laughs> he says Jack was in love with Marthe Dobray, the daughter from the villa next door, and that mm. the fa- his father, Mister Renald, was super against it. He thought that, that was a terrible idea, and so they had really fought about it. Wh- huh. Okay. What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking. Why would he be against it if he's also seeing, you know, Marth Dobre's mom all the time? Mm-hmm. Mm. So that makes you think, right, what's going on there? Is it really yeah, what we the, think it is? Maybe the Dobre's are no good, you know? Like maybe, maybe. The, um, the regular payments that Dobre was cashing was uh, some like blackmail money. Yeah, that would fit into really well, especially if it's uh, like separate installments, etc. Mm-hmm. So Mr. So Jack's here, they're kind of questioning him still. And then they, Mr. Bex, the commissioner, goes to get the murder weapon to show Jack and to like get him to confirm it. But he runs back and says it's gone. Wait, so the commissioner runs back and says the, the murder weapon is gone? Yeah, like he goes to the shed oh. to get it out of the jar and there's no, the, the, the dagger is gone. Okay, jeez. So Hastings kind of gives this like, but it was there this morning, which everyone looks to him and is like, why were you looking in the shed this morning? And then he's forced to explain about the girl. Ah. So now Train Girl is suspect number one for taking the murder weapon. Train Girl or um, they're kind of saying there was this like period of 20 minutes where he, the shed was just unlocked. Yeah, yeah, right. And so what Jiro says is that this is actually really fortunate because now that they know that the murderer is still in town, like he hasn't left if he was able, right. he or she were able to steal the dagger that quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so either, yeah, either the murderer or an accomplice is close at hand. So that's kind of like we can catch them if they're this close. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Hastings and Poirot leave. I think they're going back to their hotel or maybe for lunch or something. And Hastings is thinking back on something that Madame Renault or Mrs. Renault had said in the in that like in that room where everyone was kind of being interrogated. And it's when her son had come back into the room saying that his train has de- been delayed. And she says, after all, it does not matter now. It's that he's like, that's strange. What is she, what is what is meant by that? What's she hiding is kind of what he's mm-hmm. saying. Sorry, Madame de Bray said that it doesn't matter now. Uh, Mrs. Tra- oh, Miss- Mrs. Renault, the wife. Mrs. Renault. Okay, so maybe so maybe she did know some amount of yeah. what the uh, business was for. Maybe it was uh, his son was sent exactly. on a mission to save his life. Yeah. 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 So, she's that's sort of like what what does she know that we don't know? Mm-hmm. 
So Poirot agrees with him, which is honestly not typical. Normally, Poirot disagrees with everything Hastings says. Um, and then he also shares some other like elucidations that he's had. Um, first of all, being that the first person he suspected was Mrs. Renald, the wife. That was who he thought had killed the husband, which makes sense. Like she inherits right. all the money. Yeah. Um, and then he's, he kind of says the bounds on her wrists were tied really tight. So for sure, she couldn't have done them herself, which is like one thing. Right. So if it was her, she would need some accomplice. Yeah, there definitely has to be like someone else in this as well if it is her, and he's not sure if it is even her anymore. Then she says that the wristwatch was supposed to prove the time, which means that time is important. So he's saying someone tried to put the wristwatch two hours ahead and smash it to like prove that something happened at 2 a.m. when in fact it happened at 12 a.m. So like time is important in this case. Oh man, okay. Then he points out that the last train left the town at 12, 17 a.m. So he's like, maybe that's how the time is important. Mm. And that's what like the cover was for. Right, so this could have been a quick and dirty 17-minute murder and then catch the last train yeah. and set the yeah, yeah. time forward, right? Thinking about right now is if it was the wife and an accomplice, I don't know if there would need to mm-hmm. be a reason to smash the watch and then set it two hours forward. Like, because what exactly would have to happen there? The watch would be smashed and then they'd have to think, oh, the watch won't move anymore. So it needs to line up with when we're going to tell our story of when this will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like, um, it's something you see in detective stories. Yeah. I guess that does like sort of leave suspicion on the wife though. Cause that does line up if the wife like doesn't want, um, like wants some accomplice to leave town on the last train, I guess that would make sense that they do the murder around yeah. midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then make it seem like that's impossible because it happened at 2 a.m. Right. Because it's still possible because he, the, 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 they said that he died between midnight and 3 a.m. Okay. Yeah. So it's, yeah, exactly. The midnight is still possible. Totally. Mm-hmm. So the next thing Poirot suggests is that someone had read about the case, the, like a case that was similar to this one, and then by accident had copied it. So just was in their subconscious. And he's saying that means the masked men are fake. That like they're they're an invention. Hmm. Um, he shares his theory about the flower beds, and he's kind of saying like, listen, there were no footprints in the flower beds under the tree, but there are footprints everywhere in all the other flower beds. And the gardener said that he just planted all of them. His footprints should have been in that flower bed too. So someone wiped over the footprints. Ah, mm-hmm. Um, so that's, he's kind of saying like, everyone's saying that the flower beds aren't important, but like they are, someone either climbed up or climbed down the tree. And Poirot thinks that someone came, climbed out the window and down the tree to get away. Right. Um, or couldn't they have also, they could have also gone in from the, from, from climbing the tree, right? Yeah, they could have. It's, it's just Poirot think, Poirot thinks that it's more likely out, but he doesn't say why. That's just what, like his theory Okay, interesting. I mean, they did drag him out, though, right? They claim to have. Yeah, but again, he's saying that there are no masked men, that that's a, that's a fabrication. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, and then he's saying that Hastings is suggesting that Madame Renault or Mrs. Renault is shielding someone, and Poirot agrees. But who they're shielding, mm-hmm. not sure. Mm-hmm. So Poirot and Hastings have a nice lunch, and Poirot makes them, like, give him more details about Train Girl. Right. Um he's interested in Hastings love affairs. And then Poirot announces that he is leaving for Paris to look for the murderer. Um, and Hastings not allowed to come. Interesting. 
So he leaves and then Hastings goes for like a long walk along the beach and makes up his mind to go look for Train Girl. Right. I, I, I'm really confused by this, by Train Girl right now, you know? I've like, earlier I was thinking <laughs> that she was just conveniently yeah. written in to to just justify the shed being unlocked for 20 minutes. But it's also like, wh- why is she there? Mm. You know, shouldn't, shouldn't Poro be like, yeah. dude, I think yeah. you got a stalker. You got you gotta be careful. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that that is the it's gonna it's gonna keep getting weirder. So don't expect it to get easier. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so Hastings at this moment he goes for a walk along the beach and then he makes up his mind to go look for Train Girl because she had told him what hotel she was staying at like mm-hmm. as she was leaving, and so he goes to the hotel and the guy's like, no, no, no one of that description has stayed here at all. Like, no, that girl's not here, and so. Hastings is like, what was, did she by accident give me the wrong hotel or was right. this deliberate? Was she trying to throw me off? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's kind of leaning towards the deliberate and he's a little upset about it. Cause you know, he was into train girl. It's hurting his honor. <laughs> yeah. So kind of gloomily Hastings goes back to the villa where he sits on a bench in the yard. So he's back at like the, the dead man's house and he's just sitting in his backyard on a bench and from where he's sitting, he overhears a conversation coming from the yard over, which is the Dobre's backyard. And it's Marth and Jack are kind of saying that um, now all their troubles are over and everything's going to be okay. Whoa. And Marth says that she's afraid for Jack. Okay. So that seems damning. Damn. I didn't realize the Dobre's were so close to the... To the yeah. So yeah, they're like, they're, I'm not exactly sure. Their houses are beside each other. So they're neighbors. I guess they just kind of share like a, the bushes are between their backyard and then near the back of the yard, the golf course kind of touches onto it. Mm-hmm. So Hastings leaves. He doesn't like to eavesdrop. So he walks away and the next morning he goes back to his hotel, wakes up the next morning at breakfast. He's informed by one of the hotel staff that another murder has been committed at the villa with the oh. same dagger. Whoa. Which is like, Oh my gosh, it's happening. Here we go. Whoa. So Hastings runs to the villa. He um, finds Duroux in the small shed. So there had been the larger shed where the body had been kept was near the house. And then near, like, if you walked through the whole backyard, there's like a small shed at the back of the yard near the golf course. And that's where the body had been found. The body is like dressed up in like nice looking business clothes, but his nails are all grimy, which makes them think that he's, these aren't his normal clothes or he's trying to like impersonate Mm. someone or be someone he's not. Um, and they also say he looks like a Frenchman, which is like, they're like, does it look like a Spaniard? Does the guy from South America? No, it looks like a Frenchman. Okay. I don't know how you can tell, but they can tell. Um, and he's been stabbed through the heart with the dagger. Whoa. Jiro mm-hmm. identifies, he's able to see, it looks like they tried to scuff them, but he can see two tracks that were kind of dragging the body. And he can tell that one is a woman. So he's not sure about the other one, but one is definitely a woman's feet. Okay. Hmm. And they find black hair on the dagger, wrapped around the dagger. Black hair wrapped around the dagger. Uh, I don't remember. Who has black hair? I think every... I think Madame Dobray has black hair. Um, The potential other woman has black hair. I think the daughter has blonde hair. And the... I don't know about the wife. I think they were saying she's graying. but She might also have dark hair. Okay. Right. Um, it's not pointing to any one person in specific right now, though. So he was stabbed in the heart with the same murder weapon, yeah. wearing clothes that seemed too fancy. Yeah. Okay. 
So they bring in um, Madame Renaud, her son Jack, and Madame Dobray, the the neighbor, um, mistress potential woman, and none of them are able to identify the body. They all say, like, no idea. At this point, the magistrate and the commissioner, the two higher-up guys, and the doctor arrive. So they hadn't been on the scene right away. Right. The... Giro guy is kind of saying it'll be easy to fix the time of death because we know it's only been 24 hours since the dagger's been stolen. So it's been within the last, I would say probably closer to, like it seemed, it almost looks like he was stabbed immediately after the dagger was stolen. Right. Then the doctor comes in, looks at the body and is like, no, 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 this body, like this person's been dead at least 48 hours. Whoa. Yeah. So very confusing about Wait, what is going on. the body's been dead for at least 48 hours, but it's been stabbed through the heart. Yeah. With the murder weapon that was only stolen within the last 24 hours. Yeah. So some, there's something is wrong there, right? Like there's clearly something's up. Right. So at this moment, Hastings gets a telegram saying that Paro is arriving at the station soon. And so Hastings like basically runs to the train station to meet him on time. Right. Because so Poirot has just come back from a, like a 24 hour finding a murder murderer situation in Paris. That's what he said he was doing. I see, but maybe he had other business that he was hiding from Hastings for 24 hours. Yeah, exactly. Right. So Hastings gets to the train station, and the train's a little delayed, so while he's waiting, he asks the train conductor who had left by the last train the night of the murder, like the 1217 train. Mm-hmm. And he learns that no one suspicious left, or only two people getting on the train. They were definitely not foreigners. But Jack had arrived home on the last train coming into the village the night of the murder okay yeah okay so he's a liar because he said he was he did not he He said he wasn't boat was delayed was jack's claim yeah yeah so then poirot is super happy when he gets off the train because he's found what he wanted in paris and um he's like getting all excited and saying that you have to go back to the hotel and hastings like no we can't go back to the hotel and you know they're not not fighting but basically kind of just comes out with it and says that there's, there's been another murder and mm-hmm. Paro is flabbergasted, like just absolutely godsmacked. And um, by this news of a second murder, what Hastings kind of says, like that never happens. Paro always knows everything before me. So right. the fact that theory has know, been just shattered. Basically. So he kind of, Paro says that, that like, oh my, like my theory has been shattered, but then he thinks about it a little bit more and then goes, wait, this will make sense if um, it's a, middle-aged man dressed really nicely looks like a french man stabbed through the heart um in the shed and oh, been on. dead for 38 hours he guesses it all <sighs> like every thing yeah yeah so it's kind of like no no this fits in exactly with my theory so then they they, they go right to the murder scene and on their way paro's kind of telling hastings that it would have made sense for jack to have made two daggers like this it's probably not the same dagger. It would make sense that he had two of the main, gave one to his mom and kept one for himself because they were like a custom souvenir thing he had commissioned. Why would he only make right. one? Right. Yeah. So we're kind of, we're hopefully getting some stuff explained. So they get to the shed and Poirot kind of like looks around. Um, him and Jiro are kind of like eyeing each other up. and But he immediately figures out what Jiro didn't know. And that's that the man did not die by being stabbed. He died from a le- epileptic um, seizure. He can kind of see foam on the dead man's lips. And the doctor checks it and confirms, yeah, you're right. I didn't notice immediately, but you're right. Like this, this stab wound is not what killed him. Damn. So he's like stabbed after, after death. Yeah. 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 So this, it, it explains some things, right? Like that's why he was able to be dead 
longer than 24 hours. And if there is a second day, that would make sense. But still, you know, very confusing. <sighs> so this has happened. Poirot and Hastings leave for lunch. Um, and Poirot shows Hastings what he had found in Paris. And it's what it is. It's an old newspaper clipping with a woman's face on it. And that woman is Madame Dobray. So oh, this damn. is where he was like, I've seen her face before. Oh, yeah. And... But Poirot points out, out back then she went by, her name was Madame Beraldi, and Hastings immediately clicks with the Beraldi case, which was this fa- famous murder trial that had occurred like 20 years ago that was, it was everywhere. Everyone knew about that case. Hmm. Um, so now, and then it kind of goes like a, um, Hastings explains what the case was. And so it was basically, it was, this, it was a very similar thing that had happened in this case where Madame Beraldi had been this woman with like a nice husband that moved into Paris like a few months ago. And she had been leading on this man called George Canot, who they weren't lovers, but she was like kind of stringing him along as if they could be. And she was found one night or one morning bound and gagged and her husband was stabbed dead on the bed. And Mm. um, yeah, right. Like very, it's all the similar things. Um, she had said that there had been um, two men had come in with beards that were Russians that had tied her up and killed her husband. And they were talking about a secret. And what what ends up happening is that after a few weeks, the police accuse Madame Beraldi of killing her own husband and George Cano. But George Cano has like disappeared at this point. He's nowhere to be found. I think he writes a letter to the police from wherever he is saying, it wasn't me. I like, I helped Madame Beraldi, but like, she was the mind behind everything. Like I didn't, I was just her accomplice. I'm not like the actual, like I stabbed him, but I'm not the actual murderer basically. Oh man. Okay. Okay. So Madame Beraldi um, ends up getting acquitted. So she doesn't go to jail. Um, They find her not guilty. Crazily. So that's Madame Dobray and Madame Beraldi, same person. So Hastings is immediately like, well, now we know who did it. It's Madame Dobray. And Poirot is like, you're being silly. You always do this. That makes absolutely no sense. Why would it kind of looks like now is that like Madame Dobray was getting money out of Mr. Renault. Why would she want to kill him? Then she gets right. nothing. Especially when like, the money was going to, was not going to her in the will anyway. Yeah. It's not going to her. It's not going, like it's just going to the wife. Like why right. Hastings think is kind of what Poirot is like, you dummy. Um, and then Poirot tells him, I know who one of the murderers is. And Hastings like, what? And one murderer, there's two, mur- like there's two dead people. And Poirot's like, exactly. Two murderers means two murderers or whatever. <laughs> wow. Okay. So <laughs> yep. So Jack arrives at the hotel while they're eating lunch and Poirot kind of gives him this task. Poirot wants him to go to the next train stop over from this town and inquire at in the in the station at if two men had left bags there on the night of the murder so jack agrees and is that the stop before the town or the stop after i think the stop after but i guess it depends which direction you're going right true true, true. they're not clear it doesn't seem to matter too much but one stop away from the town in one direction or the other right (laughs) to check if two foreigners the night the murder had left bags in the station and at the same time before he's able to leave Poirot asks him why he had lied about being in town the night of the murder, like why you'd said he wasn't there. Hmm. 
And Jack admits that he had come to say goodbye to his fiance because he's engaged to Marth cool. um, before he had to leave on this long boat journey. Um, and after he'd seen her, he had, he, uh, he's, this is weird. He's like, he realized he's, he's missed his last train. So he walks 15 kilometers to the next town over to hire a car and go back to the boat station. Hmm. Okay. Sorry. So my current theory is that, um, the fight was over the fact that Jack was engaged maybe yeah. to, to, um, to Marth. And I'm guessing that's why he was taken out of the will. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't understand why he would be taken out of the will over a fight like that though. Yeah. Uh, unless, unless, unless he already knew that Madame Dobre was a murderer or was a murder mastermind. Mm, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So he doesn't want his son to marry this girl. He's like, cause he's thinking like this, you know, this is a murderer family. They're going to, yeah. They're going to kill me and then you're going to get, and then they're going to split, you know, my money with your mom. So then he takes his son out of the will to protect them. Okay. Okay. So then, okay. It's the same playbook, but why would it be used on his wife this time instead of it? Oh my gosh. Okay. Keep, keep going. But that's my, that's my working theory. That sounds good. And we'll, we'll see if we can add to it as we go. Where was I? Oh, right. So Poirot had given him, Poirot had given Jack this task of going to the train station just to get him out of the way. Like, it means nothing. So you can kind of throw that out of your mind. Okay. So they go back to the villa, and one of the reasons he wanted Jack out of the way is so that he could get, um, talk to Marth before Jack could talk to her. And as Mm -hmm. he gets her attention through the hedges, he suspects that she's in the backyard. And he tells her that Jack is the main suspect. And she admits that she was aware that he had been in town, that he had told her. And so those are like the key words because they had not seen each other. Ah, yes, she, yes. Jack had just told her afterwards. Right. Um, she says that Jiro had brought her in to see the body as well. And she, at the moment, hadn't recognized the body. But now that she's thinking back on it, there had been, Mr. Renald had been fighting with a tramp the day he got murdered, like the morning before. Um, Mm -hmm. And the tramp had kind of been like pressuring him to give him money or something. And she's pretty sure that the man in the shed and the tramp are the same person. Whoa. Wait, so could it be that he's not dead then? Who's not dead? Mr. Renault. Because wait, which, which, oh, oh, this is the other body, right? This is not, uh, this is not Mr. Renault. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. But actually, did we ever confirm the, body id for mr renald because the only two people who saw the body like they got super spooked and like fainted or ran out or something right they're pretty sure yeah the wife the wife said yes that was him i think yeah okay i I figured as much but okay yes um he's saying that if jack did not see marth the night of um that evening that his father died who did jack see right like why'd he come you know Mm -hmm. oh i'm so invested in this story right now I know we have, we have got to get it done. Okay. So they go through Jack's belongings in his room. The other reasons that Prada wanted him out of the way. And at the last moment, like, I think Jiro has caught Jack and is bringing him in the door. And at the last moment, Prada like shakes out a dresser, a drawer and finds a photograph, photograph and like shoves it into his pocket. And then they go downstairs and find that Jack has been arrested by Jiro for the murder of his father. So that's like the dun, dun, dun moment. Right. Um, and then, 
Poirot kind of immediately gets Jiro to explain his reasoning. Um, mm-hmm. And he basically, Poirot basically tells him he's wrong and that he's like forgetting all of these clues. Like what about the lead pipe? Like what about um, the door being left open or things like that? And Jiro's like, it doesn't matter. Like this works type, like they're fighting. And at this moment, um, when they come out of the study, Madame uh, Miss Renault, the wife, I guess yep. Jack's mom is coming down the stairs. And as soon as she sees Jack in handcuffs and is told that he's been arrested, she faints and hits her head on the stairs and kind of goes unconscious. So they basically can't ask her any more questions. So Hastings and Poirot leave. They're they're not going to do anything about it. They're going to let whatever happens, happens. But they're thinking about the case. And Hastings realizes something, that they are forgetting about one person, George Canoe the man from the Baraldi case who was never arrested and kind of just disappeared. Mm. And Poirot is so happy because he's like, Hastings, finally, you've like figured something out that's important. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so this is when Hastings is trying to figure out what happened. He's saying maybe he comes to town. He sees that Madame Dobre is there. And so he tries to blackmail her. And then he quarrels with Renald, who's her lover. And then like he stabs Renald or something like that. And at this point, Poirot's upset. He's like, oh, you're so dramatic. This could be a movie. Yeah, this is definitely not what happened. Like you're missing, exactly. You're missing the point. He's like, George Cano could not blackmail Madame Dobre. She was acquitted. He was, he's like on the list. He's the one that was never right. Yeah, like she could blackmail him, but not the other way around. And so at this point, Poirot kind of like leads Hastings to the truth of at least one of the murders. He's like, I can tell you who one of the murderers is, but not the second one yet. So in the Beraldi case, the Russians were a fabrication invented by who? Madame Beraldi or George Cano is kind of what he's asking. Who do you think invented the Russians? Um, okay, the Russians were invented by... And we're, um... we're kind of talking... We're talking in the sense of like why it's so similar to the case that we're dealing with now with Renald. So who? Right. So it would. I'll just leave that. Like leave that as a question, okay. and then he kind of goes through the timeline. So on whatever day he quarrels with his son, his son leaves. The next day he alters his will to cut his son out of the will, but they still are on good terms. Two weeks later, the morning before his death, he has a quarrel with a tramp. After that happens, he sends a letter to Poirot inviting him to come help him. At the same time, he telegrams to Jack telling him to go to South America and he sends his valet on holiday. And then and that evening, there's a visit by this lady who we're, we don't know who she is yet. This right. Bella Devine, probably. Um, so he's kind of like laying down that timeline and like, this is how it has to be. How does this make sense? Um, and then he points out that letter that was found in his overcoat pocket. Mm-hmm. It wasn't re- addressed to Mr. Renald. And was it really, if it wasn't, if it wasn't meant to be for him, who could the letter have been for? Do you want to take a guess? Um, was the letter to Jack? Yes, it was to Jack. Or that's what Poirot oh. suspects. Okay. So this Bella Devine is actually saying, like, I'm, it's now it's totally different. It's like, I think there's another woman, which there is this Mark. Right. It's Martha. And, wow. Um, yeah, so it's wrong, wrong, wrong overcoat. So what he's saying probably happened is that the woman who visited that night was Bella Devine and Mr. Renald was trying to pay her off to make her go away, but she ripped up the check because she was she was actually in love with Jack. She didn't want money, she wanted him. Oh man. 
So then um, the there he's saying that the tramp's death is the morning of June 7th, the day of, like, it's the same day as Ronald's death, but earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so what he's kind of saying and what I was saying about, like, who invented those Russians in the first case, if it's Madame Beraldi or George Canot, if we say that it's George Canot and George Canot planned this crime as well, um, who... They explain it so much better in the book, and I'm totally butchering it. I think I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> oh, okay. Wait, so is this is this basically the big reveal now, or is this just... No, no, no. This is like the big reveal. <laughs> right. Okay, okay. So, so give me this. Give me the, the, the appetizer review here. So they, they're saying that um, Miss, Mrs. Renald, the wife, she's lying for someone. And who would she lie for? The man she loves. So is the man she loves, George Canot, who planned the murder? And But we know from the secretary that the only man she loved is her husband. And so he's saying Mr. Renald and George Canot are the same person. Whoa, whoa. So I, I butchered that, but... Oh, man. <laughs> right? So it's like, okay, this makes sense. Madame de... de- Madame Beraldi slash Madame Dobray, who are the Dobre. same person. Dobray is blackmailing him to be like, hey, I know you're... Hey, George. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yep. I'm the only person on basically the face of the earth who could identify you. And you happen to move into the house beside me. And I'm going to blackmail you. Man, this guy got screwed. Yeah. So then Poirot kind of explains how he knows this. So he says that a body was needed for um, George Cano had kind of, or I guess Mr. Arnold, whoever, had come up with this plan. But a body was needed in order for it to take place. And so he's having this fight with this tramp and the tramp goes to leave and all of a sudden has a seizure and dies. And so he's like, perfect. We have the body. Perfect, I have Let's a body. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it kind of sets everything in motion. And that's so why he immediately sends a letter to Poirot. He gets rid of his, um, he gets rid of Jack and he gets rid of the chauffeur because they're the only two other people that can identify his body. And now it leaves his wife to identify his body and she'll lie for him because she's in on it. Right. So he sends the letter to Poirot is to bring credibility to the Santiago claim to make it seem like South Americans. Oh my! So Poirot, okay, so so sorry. So the wife was ready to ID the body and was expecting this person who died of a seizure, but then yeah. when they flip it over, she discovers it's yes. actually her husband, exactly. and that's why she's exactly. so shocked and faints. She didn't. He wasn't supposed to die. That wasn't the plan. Right. Um, so what was supposed to happen was Ronaldo was supposed to tie up his wife, go dig his own quote unquote grave, throw the tramp into it, bury it. So they're hoping that it takes a little bit longer to, um, find the body. Mm-hmm. And then he, he's traded the clothes, right? This tramp is wearing his clothes. And so then mm-hmm. he put on his um, son's overcoat. And then when he, he was he, digging the grave, he got stabbed yeah. in the back. Yes, exactly. So that's why he only had underclothes on under the overcoat is that he was going to put on the tramp's clothes once he was done. Right, right. Um, but he's stabbed in the back, yeah, and kind of falls into his own grave. And so that's why he's saying I solved the one murder, the quote unquote murder of the tramp. But this second, the murder of Mr. Renald, now we got to figure that one out. So who stabbed him in the back and had access to the dagger? Yeah. So Poirot is saying they must go to London to find a witness. And he shows Hastings that photograph that he had found in uh, in Jack's room. And Hastings looks at it and kind of like does a double take because the Bella, it's Bella Devine is the name that's written on the photograph, the but it's train girl. girl. God damn it. Oh my goodness. What? Right? We come around. <laughs> what? They're the same person. 
So Hastings is in love with this girl. And now Poirot wants to go like interview her. And he's like terrified of her because she, pro he, she probably stole that dagger. Um, or like, is she, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Hastings is freaking out. Crane misdirected Hastings in order to move the body into the small shed. No, the small shed was all, no, no, the no. body was already in the small shed. Completely unrelated. No. Yeah. What am I talking about? Okay. She, she, but she steals the dagger. That's yeah. She stole the dagger. I don't know that, but it's kind of like this is kind of adding up. So they get to England that evening and inquire after Bella Devine and Poirot can have some sources. And the next morning, his sources me message like sent him a letter that the Dolce Bella kids, because it's the two sisters, are performing in Coventry. So they go to Coventry to see them perform. Poirot buys um, two stalls to see the show. So they have like the sisters, do, there's a bunch of different acts and then the sisters come on and they do like a dance and song, kind of some mm -hmm. acrobatics. They're, um, and basically after that, Hastings says he has to go. Like he can't, he feels so terrible that he needs to get out of there. Okay. So he goes back to his hotel and orders a drink at the bar and suddenly the girl is there. He hasn't realized everything until this moment and suddenly he sees her and he realizes that she took the dagger that day and he's, he kind of says, like, he says, he knows, I know who you are, you're Bella Devine. And she's freaking out um, and asks him to tell her everything she knows. And so he begins to tell her, like, kind of goes through the whole case of, like, you came to his house, you were so mad at him for keep for trying to, like, pay you off for, like, not seeing your son, that you stabbed him and that you stole the dagger. Um, and she kind of, um, like freaks out even more then he confesses his love for her and tells her that he'll protect her no matter what and then they like kiss and then what? Poirot walks in these <laughs> things are such a clown <laughs> I know it's just it's all it's all ridiculous oh my goodness so Poirot arrives and Hastings immediately grabs him, like grabs his arms and yells to Bella to like run like she has her opportunity to escape like he'll save her and I was like, you didn't need to do this. You really think I'm going to chase after her? Like, calm down. Let's sit down. Um, and basically, Hastings says that he's choosing this girl over Poirot. Like, he, I, if you can't work with him anymore and he has to go with the girl, that's fine. So, like, okay. bros before hoes is not in his playbook. Hastings is, he deserves to be ridiculed by Poirot all the time. <laughs> I think so. So then the next morning, Hastings kind of in a lot of self-reflection. He's like, did I do the right thing last night? Like, what am I doing? And then he thinks, like, Jack's been arrested. And so he's thinking, what if Jack gets hanged for this murder that he didn't commit? Because it's Bella right. Devine that committed it. And Poirot says he is going back to France and that surely Hastings is going to come with him to keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't arrest Bella. Which, of course, is right. Hastings goes with him. So first they go, they don't go back to the, the town where the Bernalds live. They go to where Jack is being held and the magistrate is. And he kind of invites them to see an interrogate the interrogation of Jack the following day, which Poirot, when he's leaving the room later, calls him dumb. He's kind of like, yes, this magistrate is dumb. I agree with Juro on that. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and while they're there, Poirot, uh, the magistrate gives Poirot a letter that had been sent to him, but they didn't know where to forward it to. And when Poirot opens it, it's a letter from Marth, the daughter of um, mm -hmm. Madame Baudray. Dubrow? Dubrow? Du... Dobray or Beraldi. <laughs> I think we're connecting the two names. <laughs> I'm getting the names all jumbled because it's, you know, okay. It is. It's very, they're French. It's confusing. Yeah. 
Um, and so Marth is asking Poirot to come help her, like she needs his aid. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they're leaving, they run into Jiro and Poirot, they're like fighting because Poirot's like, right. Jack's not the right guy. And Jiro is like, yes, he is. And Poirot bets him 500 francs that he will find the murderer before Jiro. Okay. So, you know, petty stuff. Mm-hmm. They also meet Mr. Stoner, who's in town. And he's also convinced that Jack is not guilty. He's like, there's no way that Jack Sorry, killed his father. Mr. Stoner again? Sorry, Mr. Stone is the secretary of Merle. Oh, that's right, of course. G- Gabriel, yeah. right? Gabriel. Yeah. Gabriel Stoner, yeah. So Poirot is also found out, and I think, I'm not sure if he shares this with Stoner or just with Hastings, with Gabriel Stoner, but he says um, that Jack, he inquired into Jack and the, the souvenir daggers that he had made and found that Jack had made three, three daggers. And so they think one was given to the mom, one was given to Bella Devine, and Jack like kept one. So now it's like, oh my God, there's a third dagger in the mix. Oh, man. Yeah, so if it wasn't confusing enough already. Okay. So then they go, they go, they hire a car and they go back to the town and meet up with Marth. And Poirot finds out from her, she's kind of just freaking out saying like, we have, you have to save Jack, you have to save Jack. And he asks her if she knows the true identity of her mother, to which she kind of says yes. And then she asks if he, she knew what was going on with Renald and she looks confused. So Poirot thinks that she didn't know that Renald was George Cano. Right. Hmm. So the next day at Jack's examination, Jack is practically giving himself up. He's kind of like, he's not fighting that he did it at all, which is really weird. Yeah. And so the magistrate's going on this like huge accusing spree saying that he's like, like, this is so terrible that he killed his father. And what does he have to say for himself when suddenly he gets interrupted um, by a police officer kind of saying, there's a girl here to see you. And then the girl pushes her way into the room. Um, Bella Devine? Which you're kind of expecting it to be Bella Devine, which it is, but it's oh. not train girl. It's train girl's sister, Bella Devine, the real Bella. What? What? And so she she says, my name is Bella Devine. I wish to give myself up for the murder of Mr. Renald. Are you confused yet? <laughs> okay, so here's my current understanding is, so what I thought was going on was, Belle Devine, you yeah. know, knows there's another woman and is so upset that he decides he's going to, you know, go kill Jack with the dagger that he gave her. And then yeah. he shows up and then unfortunately poor George is out there digging the grave. Yeah. And then but he's wearing, you know, his son's clothes so he gets stabbed yeah. in the back. Okay, but why is Bella Devine's sister taking the fall for Bella? We are Almost there. I'm oh, going to explain okay. that. Okay. I'm so and excited. Then... <laughs> okay. So shortly after all of this, Hastings receives a letter from Dolce Devine. So that was the, that's the sister's name. And this is actually train girl, Dolce mm-hmm. Devine. And she kind of just apologizes to him for lying about everything and making him think that she was Bella. And she explains to him that um, she went... She basically followed her sister to the town because she knew like that her sister was going to see Jack and she knew it was a bad idea. And so when she heard, when she saw in the papers that Mr. Renald had been killed, she immediately assumed that her sister had been involved. And so right. that's why she was snooping around. She was trying to figure it out. So oh. when she got, when she saw the body, she recognized the dagger as being like her sister's dagger. Right. And so she had stolen it. And then on her trip, on her boat ride home to um, London, had thrown it into the ocean. I see. I see. So she says she's just, she was just trying to cover for her sister. She had done it to save her. She was like, I lied to you that I was Bella because you were in love with me and you would save me, but I didn't think you'd save my sister. 
Wow. Yeah. Um, so there's no return address on the letter. So Hastings all sad that like this girl he loves still doesn't want to talk to her. But Poirot's like, nah, she's into you and I'll find her for you. Because again, Poirot's like a genius. Right. So we're really getting to the end here. Okay. So Jack is released from prison and he tells them what had happened the night of the murder. So he had he, he was originally, he was going to see Marth Duveen. And he was kind of walking across the golf course because it was a shortcut when he heard this cry and he turns the corner and sees Bella Devine standing over this dead body with the dagger stabbed through it. Oh, and so man. he freaks out and is like, oh my God, she killed him. And like basically runs away. He's like, I need to get out of here. And so when they arrested him, he just took the fall because he didn't want her to be arrested. Right. Yeah. I, I figured as much, but also I was like, Jack is really just going to go down for yeah. this girl he loves so much, like, even though she killed, you know, like, wow. Okay. They keep saying that like, like in France at this time, like it's 1923, like there was still the guillotine, I think. Like they keep saying he's going to the guillotine. Right. So yeah, really serious, not nothing you'd actually want to do. Wow. Uh, Mr. Gabriel Stoner is with them at this time, and he gets word from that Madame Renault or Mrs. Renault has recovered from her concussion. And so they immediately hire a car and go to the town to see the 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 um the mom and see what's happened. Right. Right. So they get to the house and Jack is like, Do you mind if I go see Marth? first like to tell her that i'm out of jail and Poirot's like perfect like we'll split up we'll go see the, your mom you'll go see marth mm-hmm. and Poirot says he wants to go up to see her alone so hastings and the secretary wait downstairs okay. and when para kind of like comes downstairs he says there are squalls ahead things aren't looking good so at this moment marth and jack are coming up the path um and Poirot tells them don't come in like your mom does not want to see you right now you really like you should go away and jack's like no it's my mom i need to see her and I was like, okay, but like, don't bring Marth in then. Like, just go by yourself. Miss Renald, she has a mind of her own. She's not going to let Poro tell her what to do. And so she comes down the stairs and denounces Jack as her son and says that she's cutting him out, cutting him out off the wheel. Like, he's not going to touch. He's morally wrong for letting this girl kill her, his dad, like, and her husband. Mm-hmm. And that she, he's not going to touch a penny of his dad's money because he's so terrible for doing this. And then she Jeez. goes back to the stairs. Yeah, so it's like, oh god, oh god, oh god, god. So Mars basically, like, Jack's kind of almost, like, fainting at this point. Like, he's been in custody in jail for however many days. His mom's just, like, his dad's dead. His mom's cut him out. And so Marth brings, helps him back to her house where he's, they're gonna, like, let him rest. Uh-huh. Um, and the doctor comes, and I think they give him a sedative to, like, put him to sleep. Like, make, um, so they can rest. Um, so Hastings and Paro go back to the hotel and meet Dolce there. So Paro has found her and she has with her, Paro's like, did you bring the thing that I wanted you to bring? And she's like, yep. And she unwraps it and it's the dagger, her, her sister's dagger. Damn. That she claimed she threw in the ocean? So that's what Hastings is thinking. Like, yeah, women are- Ah, uh, this so is so the too. third dagger. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If this is the third dagger, wait. Oh my gosh, did- it, did Bella Devine not kill him? It was. It wasn't Bella Devine. It was Marth. Wait, what do you think is happening? Okay, we're kind so, of like Poirot knows who's done it at this. Okay, point. this is not, so. This is there's no there's no more twists, right? This, the kind of re, the resolution has kind of happened. Uh, it's happening. So I'm, I'm it's technically happening. not finished. You want to guess now, and then I'll come. Okay, there's there's three daggers, right? Yeah. The first one was the mom's dagger, and that dagger 
that dagger was was that used pretty sure i don't think they found one in the house yeah so that was the was that dagger the murder weapon then oh my gosh okay so jack likely has one and bella devine likely has one but then her sister thought she saw bella's um dagger and so she throws it into the ocean only to discover that bella still has her dagger which means the murder weapon was one of the other two daggers so it was either jack's dagger or the dagger that was in the house that was a gift to jack's mom (sighs) a lot going on oh my gosh so the murderer then i don't think it was jack's mom because jack's mom was like very shocked Mm -hmm. could the murderer have been jack i don't know why jack would murder okay i'm gonna say it's marth then okay do you want to hear the solution yeah hit me okay so what ends up happening is so then they go I think they're going to go back to the villa, but first they go by to check up on Jack to make sure he's still okay. So they're coming up to the house and it's, it's like evening now. Also, um, Dolce has kind of, they're going to leave her at the hotel and she's like, no, you're not to hell with that. I'm coming, mm-hmm. which is, uh, Hastings is like, no, you're not. And Parle's like, oh, whatever, let her come. So she comes. So they go by Marth and, um, Madame Dobre's house where Jack is and they see, they can see Marth is like, sitting watch by Jack. She's they, they heard like silhouette crocheting is up in the window, knock on the door. Mother comes, lets them in. They go check on Jack. He looks fine. Mark looks a little stressed, but same old, same old. Right. Um, and then they go, they leave her and they're walking towards the villa and Poir kind of like looks back and sees Marth's silhouette in the window, still like keeping watch. And then they get to the house and they see a light turn on in one of the upstairs windows and they hear screaming. And so they, the door is locked to the main house and what? so they can't get in. So Pora like bounds up the tree and goes in the window. The bedroom door has been locked from the outside in. So they can't get out of the door, but they hear this screaming still. And so it's this like lucky thing where like luckily they let Dolce, Dolce come with them because she's an acrobat. Like that's what she does by day. <laughs> so she hangs, she hangs from the roof and shuffles all along to that other window that they can't get into and throws herself in. And, they, and then the the Francoise, the housemaid, comes and lets Poirot and Hastings out of the room. And then they go to the other door and there's kind of, they can't hear as much. Um, and then I think they hear a thud. Dolce's go, Dolce before was going like, I have wrists of steel. Like you're not going anywhere. And then she opens the door and lets them in. Right. This was Madame Renault was in that room. She's kind of like looking uh, <gasps> like rot. And lying on the floor is like a covered face, like someone fully wearing black. And they uncover the the body and it's um, this it's it's Marth Dobre. So you're right. Damn. Congrats. Well done. Exciting though, right? Like that was just insane. It's a great story. Such an exciting story. I was trying to like keep it a back and forth, but the whole time I was just so invested in just listening <laughs> to the story. I didn't even, man. Yeah, that was a exciting conclusion. I, th- I think I think you were right on. I think you were just so keeping along the whole time so well that like everyone was crossed out, so it had to be Martha Dobre, and I think that was like the good way of doing it. Yeah, I'd never truly figured out the motive there because I was mostly focused on who it could be. But yeah, yeah. But let me try to figure out now. So Marth killed, Marth killed him because was. Let me. I'll I'll just finish by saying she was trying to kill 
um, Madame Renault there. Like she had a hypodermic syringe and chloroform with her. Oh, wow. She was trying to kill Madame Renault because, wait, what were their problems then? They said all their problems would be gone now that, now that Jack's dad was dead. So Jack's mom must've knew something too. I don't think I can work it out. I think you'll just have to hit me with it. You, you're, you know, you're tired. We've been at this for an hour and a half. <laughs> um, yeah. So what, what it was is like, it's, it's, it's pretty much like the straightforward why all murders are committed is like there has to be motive. And so Marth, when she had killed Mr. Renault, mm-hmm. she didn't know the new will. So she expected that Jack, she was getting like, Jack was getting half the money. Ah, yes, because Jack didn't know the yeah, money. Yeah, so it's either. just this whole yeah. money thing. And so when they find out, when Poirot had set it up, he had told Madame Renault, I want you to renounce your son in front of Marth because we need we need to get, we don't have any proof right now. We need to get this thing moving, is what he's saying. And so um, right. Madame God Renault was damn. lying there. Like, she's not, she loves her son. She was not renouncing him. She was just doing it as a sh- like show. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. we see the silhouette in the window, but it's actually it's Madame Dobray. It's not the daughter. Martha's like already run out of the house to get to the villa before them. It's all, like that wow. was just to give herself an alibi to say no, I was crocheting beside Jack, like I was in the window. Um, so she she was trying to kill the mother before she could rewrite her will because at the point in time it would all go to Jack. Right. Right. Whoa. Yeah. And to tie up some other loose ends, I'm in Agatha Christie lore, Hastings and Dulce Duvine get married. Oh, nice. So wait, you cared about that. (laughs) So then why does, so was Jack in on this then? No, Jack was not in on this. Only Martha. He has no idea. It's, they, Hmm. they kind of suspect that Martha never loved Jack. She was always in it for the money. They're like, it's, it's, she's just like her mother is kind of what they're saying. Right, right. So the mother was using George for his money by blackmailing him. And then Marth decides to go for George's yeah. son to also get his money. Yeah. 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 And it's it, what they're kind of saying is that um, the mother was only getting like thousands of francs, thousands of yeah. pounds out of Right. The Whereas husband, they could have millions they if they went for the big score. Yeah. Yeah. This makes yeah, sense. Exactly. It's wow. like why I stopped here. Yeah. Yeah. So then my theory the of, of him writing his son out of the will to protect. To, to prevent his fortune. You were exactly right. Hands was right. Okay, nice. Yeah, that's what I meant. I pretty, we're bang on right from the beginning. Awesome. Well done. Thank you. I didn't, I didn't fool you. I need to pick no. a harder one. I didn't know. <laughs> I think I was asking the right amount of questions that I, I would kind of like force yeah. you to give me a, a few more uh, bits that helped me. Yeah, say. you're right. Well, this was really fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And I hope everyone at home guessed it just as easily as Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Bye.